How long would a clock continue working in a crocodile? For a zombie outbreak to be a legitimate threat, how contagious would the virus need to be? We obviously use more than 10% of our brain. Where did that idea come from? So, some spiders have a working memory. Could we teach them to spell? Hello, device listeners. Welcome to Device Interviews, the supplementary podcast to the main podcast device, but is not a lesser podcast by any stretch of the imagination. Within this podcast, I will present the full interviews that I did with my interviewees. And in this episode, I spoke with Derek Acosta and E. McNeil. Now, if you haven't listened to the fifth episode of the Device Podcast, Presence Mechanism, it's not going to really ruin this experience for you. This interview is interesting on itself. However, Um, It will enrich your experience if you do listen to it. But Derek, E, and I, we talked about so many amazing things. This interview is just so different from the other interviews that I did for this podcast, mostly because I was the only scientist in the room, but I wasn't the expert by any stretch of the imagination. I was really the novice. Both E and Derek had so much personal experience with video games and VR and their past, presence, and future. It was just kind of great to listen to them talk. Um, I do want to take a moment to apologize to Derek because, um, so Derek is actually in the room for most of my interviews and he's kind of on the side. So it took me a long time to introduce him during this interview because I was just kind of used to him being there, but not actually having to introduce him. So his introduction into the podcast is a little delayed, but he is there the entire time. Um, that's that's on me, Derek. Sorry. Uh, I'm not going to interrupt this podcast all that much, except for one time when we start talking about the word presence and I go down a rabbit hole, uh, which I'll get to when we get to that point in the interview. But for now, let's tuck in and enjoy the conversation I had with Derek Acosta and E. McNeil. Well, I didn't know if I yeah. should say this is E. McNeil or if I should just be like, I'm E. McNeil. I'm a solo indie game developer working on VR stuff here in San Diego. Um, I've released a bunch of VR games, mostly smallish strategy games on the Oculus Rift and some of the early VR headsets. Cool. Cool. Um, okay. So you've also given some talks about the, the past, present, and future of VR. And uh, we want to talk a little bit about that. So let's talk a little bit about the past of VR um, and, the you know, what systems are basically the groundwork, have laid the groundwork for VR as we see them today? VR has been around for a good long while. Um, my understanding is that some of the earliest research was done by NASA and some of the big companies out there. And that was very rudimentary compared to what we have now. And... A little later on, um, in like the mid-90s, VR kind of had its first moment. And it became, it seemed like it was going to possibly become popular. The VR boy came out from Nintendo. Um, There was a lot of like VR systems in arcades and stuff like that. But it wasn't good at the time. They had an idea of what it could do, and they didn't have the hardware or the tech to make it do that yet. Why wasn't it good? Well... First of all, there is a problem with weight where you need to have something very light if you're going to wear it on your head and look around comfortably. And at the time, if you don't have really light screen or really lightweight screens and things like that, you're going to be basically strapping an entire CRT television to somebody's face and hoping for them to look around. It doesn't work very well. Um, They also had a problem with just uh, hardware that was powerful enough to run a fast experience that could animate smoothly and avoid getting people nauseous. And so they were working with much lower frame rates than is necessary for people to be comfortable. 
Um, I can talk a little more about, you know, frame rate and that kind of thing now or later if you'd like. But Well, if, I mean, um, <laughs> I think that, you know, because frame rate's one of the things that the frame rate's not, uh, if it isn't up to speed, it can give, no, like, cause nausea and stuff like that, right? Like, it's one of those things where it's, if it's not there, it's not only is it not look real, it's a bad experience. Yeah, exactly. Our brains are really good at determining when something doesn't look quite right because, the theory is often that's a signal that we've been poisoned or something, that something's messing with our senses and maybe we need to throw up. And so if you show somebody a VR experience and it's not quite running right, if it's running too slow or there's something wrong with calibration, then people are going to notice that subconsciously. They might not be able to tell you unless they have a very trained eye what's wrong with it, but they will feel sick quickly. Um, and then there's there's further problems with that with you know that are still a problem to this day with for instance locomotion where if you want to move the player in a game and they're not moving in real life your brain is going to notice that you're going to notice that your you know your viewpoint is moving forward but your body is not and that doesn't feel good. Um, I just realized I did something very mean. I should have introduced you too. I'm sorry, Derek. We can. <laughs> <laughs> Derek's joining us for this interview. Shall I introduce myself? Yeah. Oh, my name is Derek Acosta. I'm a producer on the Device Podcast, but in addition to that, I run a YouTube channel about video games and gaming called Mega64. Um, so I've experienced VR in my other job, my <laughs> other life with Mega64. Uh, I've kind of seen the development over the past couple of years, and I've had a chance to experience it too. So yeah, what E is saying about feeling sick... I've had that happen, and it happens suddenly, <laughs> and it messes you up for hours. Like, <laughs> is, are there more details to that story that maybe are not good for the air? Or? Oh, no, no. It's just, it's exactly what he said, uh, this feeling of locomotion. For me, I was in a car, and it was really exciting in the VR space, and I stuck my head out the window, and I was, like, taking it all in, and suddenly I realized, you know, I'm not in a car. I'm sitting in my living room, and, like, nausea just washed over me. I had to throw the headset off. And for hours, you know, three or four hours after that, it's just sick with a headache. There are some stories of this from the early days of uh, developing for the Oculus Rift in mm. 2013, 2014. Um, first of all, the headset was, was still, you know, not as finely tuned as the stuff that we have now. But secondly, there wasn't really any great software for it. People were just kind of messing around and seeing what worked. And so in your own experiments and testing out the experiments of other people, there was a lot of stuff that could make you sick. Um, so I personally had an experience where I was trying to implement some sort of turning of the player's head in the game where you could hold down a button and it would rotate your viewpoint. And I thought that the way to do that would be to make it really nice and slow and gentle and it gradually accelerates and decelerates. And as it happens, that is the opposite of the current best practice. <laughs> what you want to do is either have an instant turn or a really quick snap um, because then the brain doesn't have time to get confused. Instead, the way that I did it, I kept trying for about 15 minutes to, you know, calibrate it just right. And instead, I just ended up knocking myself out for the rest of the day. Oh. <laughs> the thing about VR nausea is you, it will not go away quickly. If you start to feel it build up, it's not going to just dissipate in a few minutes. You can't push your way through it. It's just going to get worse. And though I've never actually heard of somebody throwing up from VR, I have had the experience and a lot of other VR devs have had the experience of just having to lay down for hours. Exactly. Yeah. That's what happened to me. The room was spinning for all night, basically. It sounds... So you get the spins, basically. I mean, I didn't feel it as spinning. I just felt it as sick. Just sick, but you, you can't throw up. I don't know. It's, it's not a good scene. 
but VR is fun, right? Oh, yeah, VR is great. <laughs> well, no, you should try it. To me, the things we're discussing here, this is the one thing holding it back. Yeah. Uh, it's not a 100% guaranteed experience, or it's not fully realized yet. Um, there's still a gap between where it needs to be to where everybody can enjoy it and where it is now where you go in knowing the risk of this might make you nauseous. It might just hit you and you'll have to throw it off. I see it more as a problem that is now known and that we can solve or work around. So first of all, a lot of the things that made me sick early on were mistakes in how I implemented software, you know, how I built the game that you can now just fix and it's not a problem anymore. Other things were limitations of the hardware that by and large have gotten solved. For instance, now they have positional tracking on the headset. So if you move your head around, um, your viewpoint will move around, you know, perfectly corresponding to that, hmm. which wasn't something that was available on the very first generation of VR headsets. Um, and then also just the frame rates and the resolution have improved, which helps. Um, but then also game designers like me can design around these limitations. So for example, a lot of my recent games have been stationary where you don't have to move around in a large area. Instead, I'm building strategy games and I miniaturize everything that's happening in the game. So it takes place on like a board gaming table sitting in front of you. And that feels cool dealing with sort of miniature pieces, you know, moving around and animated. It's sort of like the chess game in Star Wars with the, you know, the little guys moving and fighting each other. But it never causes nausea. It's very safe from that perspective if you have positional tracking and all the rest of those components, because there's no opportunity for that disconnect where your body's moving, but your viewpoint's not, or vice versa. That said, it's a big design limitation if you're trying to only build stationary experiences, because you can't have that cool car racing experience or, you know, whatever else it is that you want to do. Hmm. Yeah. You're, you're limited to the physical space that you have, which in most cases is, you know, a small area in the middle of a room. Hmm. I actually, that's one of my favorite things experiencing in VR is the um, sense of size being distorted. You feel much bigger than you would in actual reality or much smaller. But it isn't also because I've seen a lot of, and maybe this is um, more moving into augmented reality, but um, a lot of these headsets are also, you know, taking your surroundings into account. Like they're scanning the room that you're in and like placing um, you know, what you're seeing in your headset in what you can see in front of you. So is that like also, does it also still feel kind of big or is that? I think that's more like augmented reality, um, <laughs> definitely. I think what I was referring to is more what E described as looking over a board. I had an experience where uh, I was in a VR demonstration where they had a miniature city mm. and I could look into it. And at first it kind of looked like a toy or maybe a model. But then as I leaned in close, I could see little people in there walking around, doing things, uh, and it just made me feel so big. And, you know, I really wanted to, like, shove my face down to the street and, like, <laughs> look in the windows and see what they were doing. It was really amazing. I had a different experience where I was in a cave and a giant dragon started walking all around, stepping over me, and I felt really tiny. Huh. It was very convincing. Um, I haven't experienced any augmented reality or headsets that scan in the room. Well, the scanning the room stuff is really the state of the art right oh, okay. now. I don't think that there's any headsets that are out there commercially right now for, for consumers that are using that technology, but it's starting to show up in developer kits and it's uh, it's definitely something that a lot of people are working on. I see. Okay. It's probably going to be, you know, in some of the next generation headsets. And 
mostly on the augmented reality side where, you know, you're superimposing things on the real world and you can see the real, real world, but also in VR where, um, for example, at the, last, at the last Oculus Connect conference, Oculus showed a new experience where they built this arena out of just boxes and obstacles that didn't look like anything. But then everybody could put on a headset that, you know, had pre-programmed what was in the room. It knew what those obstacles were and it could draw them as whatever it wanted. And so it could make this space that was very plain look like something completely different. There's another experience called The Void where they build entire warehouses based on this idea where everything is designed to be the same shape and size as the VR world or vice versa, I guess, I suppose. Mm. And you can walk through hallways and you can, you know, tap on like a electronic control panel, but really it's just a flat space on the wall and the game knows where it's supposed to be. Or you can look out over a ledge and, you know, see a cliffside and the wind, you know, beating on your face. In reality, it's just like a three-foot drop onto a mattress in front of you. But you can't feel that. You just know that, the, the, you know, the, the, the hallway ends and the wind is just a fan. Hmm. But mm -hmm. you combine these real-world elements with the VR elements and if you do it seamlessly enough, it starts to become a very high-fidelity experience. There was a video I saw where... Um... Um, it was it was tied with an advertisement, and I can't remember what the um, the company was advertising. But people were like walking along a cliff face, and you know it's just like a like a plank of wood, <laughs> basically like like with a, a guardrail that they were walking on. But it looked if you looked down, it looked like if you fell off, you fell off. And it, there was like people were freaking out; they were like clinging to the side of the wall. That's a very common uh, you know demo to do in VR. Mm. Um, things where you know people you play with people's fear of heights or something like that, and you know, because you get that feeling in VR, you know, of scale and of height, you know, of, of distance, you know, that's what the VR headsets are designed for. That's what they're good at. And so it's just like a really cool, you know, first experience to show off the power of VR. So off of that, um, you've talked about in previous um, conferences, like the ethical problems with VR where like, you know, know is it really okay? <laughs> but is it okay to scare people like that? Like if someone, I mean, I understand that people are kind of willingly putting on these headsets and like agreeing that they want to be part of this experience. But if it is something that maybe, you know, if it's the first time you're doing it, maybe it's not something that you knew it was going to be that intense. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is to some extent something we can understand in other media, you know, in films, you can make a horror film that's scary and it's fun, but probably beyond a certain point, it's not fun anymore. Um, it's too scary or it's just distasteful in some way. Mm. Um, and even in the real world, like pranks and some things, you can take things too far. It's just not fun anymore. In VR, I think people discovered that where you have complete control over the reality that you're building for people and it's immersive, it's easier to take things too far than they expected. And the story that I think is, you know, the story that illustrates that best, I think, is from a developer who talked about building a demo where he created a fishbowl around the player's head and then inside the fishbowl created a bunch of spiders walking around. And when I tell this to developers, they laugh and, you know, they think, you know, wow, that's like, sounds scary. But what he said is it wasn't fun. It took it mm -hmm. too far. And he deleted the demo without sharing it with anybody because he just thought this was too disturbing and I don't want it to exist in the world. Hmm. And so, you know, it's interesting that that happened with a, a independent developer working on his own in early hardware, just messing around, you know, in a day or so. And he, he takes things way too far, which is hard to do in other media. So 
yeah, maybe there's a lot of power that we have, you know, as VR developers. And um, I, I, I'm not even scared of spiders, and I think that would freak me out. I can imagine out. all the avant-garde artists, oh, and, you know, <laughs> salivating as they listen to this interview right now, just <laughs> thinking about all the ways they could mess with the general public with their VR Performance art project. Art. Yes. Well, I, I think, though, you know, that's kind of the danger. It's like even the developers who hear the, the spiders in the fishbowl story don't hear it and immediately think, oh, man, you know, I better be careful and back off. I think the first instinct is, oh, power. Like More powerful can, than you thought. We can do really cool things with this. Because, you know, usually the limitation as an artist is not that you're getting too powerful a reaction for too little effort. <laughs> you know, you, usually you're trying to, you know, to, to get the most emotion you can out of your audience. Um, so, you know, I... I don't know if that's become like a big problem yet. Most of the time, what people are trying to build in VR is something fun. And if they're making something scary, it's usually, you know, scary in, in the right way, in a fun way. And the nice thing about VR, you know, headsets, nobody has built a headset where you are locked into it. And there's a lot of YouTube videos and things like that where you'll see people playing some horror game and the monster pops out at them or something like that. They get scared and they rip the headset off and they're back in reality. It's fine. So I think I did that at one of your demos. Probably. Like we were because like uh, you put me in one of uh, the ones that's underwater because I'm a scuba diver. I like all things marine and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And a shark came up and I'm I, you know, I like sharks and I, I think I tore it off. <laughs> like I was just like, nope, nope, not not disengage. So when you tore it off, did was it an instant fix for you? Because I've actually experienced sometimes I've been in VR and I've had negative experience and uh, it took me a moment to readjust to i think the crazy thing was is that i mean i've scuba dived with sharks in real life yeah like and i've been but I, I think i was mentally prepared to see them like i was going to a place where i knew there was going to be sharks and in this the vr headset it was a it was a cartoonishly large shark <laughs> <laughs> and like um it, you know, and the teeth are a lot larger than they would be in real life. And it, it's designed to kind of give you that jump factor. And I actually felt embarrassed. That was my first thought because oh. I felt that someone like me who kind of preaches that we shouldn't be scared of these creatures was immediately terrified. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, but that was, uh, it was, it was a fix. Like once my heart rate kind of came down, but it was, yeah, it got me, it got me jumping. Well, there's another story actually that I think might be interesting here. Um, one of my favorite games in VR ever is a game called Super Hot. And it's kind of an action game, like shoot 'em up, where you're, you're moving in slow motion and you're in gunfights and fistfights with a bunch of enemies. And the conceit of the game is that even within the game, it's like a virtual world. Like everybody that you see is these sort of like red, you know, crystalline polygons. And, you know, none of it's very real. But the story in the game kind of plays with like, oh, well, maybe you're controlling things in the real world. Maybe you're actually, you know, going and killing people through this program somehow. Ooh, scary. Hmm. Well, there's one point in the game where playing with that, to move to the next level, you have to, you know, get your character out of this simulation. And the way you do that is take the gun, put it to your head and pull the trigger. And I, I thought that was really uncomfortable. And I actually, I had a friend who played it and refused to to do that, hmm. refuse to, to go past that point. And I really understand that. I actually think that was a distasteful part of the game because it felt like 
jumping off a cliff or something. It felt like this is something that I would never do in real life. I have a very strong, you know, feeling like not to do that. Don't, you know, don't jump, don't pull the trigger. And the game, you know, it's just a game. We know that nothing's going to happen. But in some way, it felt like um, it was, you know, getting me accustomed to the act in some way. Like, you know, you, you do it and it's fine. And now you're a little desensitized to the shock of it or something like that. And I, I, I could imagine if this was every level in the game, if it was just a really routine thing to pull a gun to your head and pull the trigger, I don't really like the idea of what that would do to my, you know, uh, instincts or behavior in the future. Hmm. Absolutely. I feel like, um, and this is something that I have been expressing with all of my comments today, the line between virtual reality and actual reality when you're in that headset becomes very blurry. And that's why I ask when you threw the headset off after seeing the shark, was it immediately back to normal or did it take a few moments to adjust? Because I feel like there is this moment sometimes where you forget you're in VR because it is so, I mean, the screen is one inch away from your eyeballs. Hmm. Everywhere you look in every direction, you're in this world and your brain stops reminding you, at least for myself, you just stop being aware of the room you're sitting in, your living room, you know, what's yeah. going on outside that VR headset. It does become very visceral and real, you know? I don't think, yeah. I mean, because I think even with that, I think I kept putting it back on. Yeah. Like trying to be like, no, I'm not scared. I'm not scared. <laughs> like, and I, I was. They've done these yeah. uh, famous studies. Maybe you've heard of it about how they asked uh, basketball players to practice throwing free throws. And then they had another team just meditate on throwing free throws. Just imagine yourself making free throws. Hmm. And they saw which team improved more. And they found that both in teams, both teams had improved equally. And that just visualizing doing a task successfully gained you the same amount of experience as actually doing the task. And I think if you have that power of meditation just with your own thoughts by yourself in a room, you know, how would VR affect your experiences? And, you know. Well, the buzzword for that feeling of really being there, of yeah. subconsciously forgetting on some deep level, even if you know consciously, you know, that you're in a virtual space is called presence. Okay. Which is kind of interesting. You know, I feel like being present is a, a term in meditation and, you know, I don't know if there's actually a connection there. Never mind. But anyway. Um, <laughs> I think there might be. Okay. Rabbit hole time. The origin of the word presence. Now, does it come from Buddhism or from the word telepresence? And the internet is very divided, as you may imagine. However, I got some really great help from Grant Barrett, who is one of the co-hosts of the San Diego-based podcast, Away With Words. If you have not heard of this podcast and you are nerdy about the English language and the different things that we say and why we say them, I highly recommend checking it out. First of all, presence is actually a much older word than I originally thought it was. It comes from Old French and it means being at hand. Now, in this interview, E was talking about the origin of the word in VR and that it has its roots in the word telepresence. Um, telepresence means using tech to make us present in some place that we physically aren't. So that's like Skype in FaceTime. But the origin of telepresence is even older than that. Telepresence stems from telematics, which is the transmission of information over long distances using technology. It also stems from teleoperation, which is remotely operated machines, like a remote control car. The concept of presence, even though it's been adopted by the VR industry, you don't need VR to experience presence. 
Google the rubber hand illusion. In 1998, there was an article published in Nature by two psychiatrists from the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon University. So the rubber hand illusion is kind of bizarre. Let's say you take your left hand and you stick it just out of you, like behind a barrier. And now you take a rubber left hand and you put it in front of you. Now, somebody else will take a paintbrush or, you know, a straw, something soft and just lightly touch both your actual hand and the rubber hand. And after a while, all the person touching you really needs to do is brush the rubber hand only and you will still feel it on your left hand. It's really bizarre. It's a one-page paper. Again, it's going to be in the footnotes, so check it out. Um, but yeah, that is what I dug up on the origin of the word presence. It's a little bit more complicated and widespread than we thought, but yeah, very interesting. Anyway, back to the interview. But go ahead, continue. <laughs> yes, thank you. I want to emphasize that thing, people have said things along those lines about video games for a long time, about how they might be influencing the youth's behavior. And I remember, you know, hearing it's been stories about that that's not true, though, right? Well, I I don't believe so. I mm. believe that games can influence people, and I believe that you know there's probably some studies you know that show that certain types of games are harmful, and you know others are beneficial. Um, I don't believe the kind of moral panic perspective that pervaded in the early 90s, where, for instance, you know, some of the first first-person shooters were being called murder simulators and things like that. I don't believe that it turned an entire generation into psychopaths because I'm fine, thank you very much. <laughs> um, but at the, on the other hand, I still want to, you know, hold to the idea that we have power as artists and designers, and that maybe a lot of power if we're creating these virtual worlds that are very immersive, and that maybe we do want to take some care as to what we're, you know, showing in these worlds. And right now, I feel like there's not a whole lot of danger or worry because a lot of the worlds that are being created are very stylized. They're very fantastical. And I don't feel like you're creating anything that's, you know, going to, to influence you in a way that you wouldn't like. Um, but I do think that if somebody really set out to do it, nowadays they could make a murder simulator um, in, in a way that, that, you know, absolutely did not apply to those early games like Doom. Oh, God, that is... I think you're right. And I think... <laughs> With VR also, the experiences you receive in VR are more uh, visceral. They affect you more. It's almost like when you have a dream and you argue with somebody in a dream and then you wake up and you're still mad at that person. <laughs> VR is like being in a dream sometimes. You, It's completely immersive. Yeah. Those video games from the 90s, you were sitting in your living room watching it on a TV, so there was still a level of disconnect. But when you put this headset on, the controller is gone. You're just there experiencing this new world. Yeah, but have you ever, like, gone back and played some of those older games? And, like, I think, you know, we all have emulators and stuff like that on yeah. our phone nowadays. But, like, I a couple of years ago, I went back and played Legend of Zelda, like, Ocarina of Time. Okay. And yes. I remember being blown away by the graphics when I was a young kid. Yeah. They're not great. <laughs> like, and I think that, like, you're right. There's, like, this immersiveness, but... I was immersed in that entire world mm -hmm. kind of thing. And it, it's only time that's shown me, like, oh, this is maybe not as realistic as I remember it. Well, that's the reason why the VR industry invented the buzzword presence, hmm. because they were trying to come up with something different from immersion, which is a term that's been used for a long time. And I think what they were trying to talk about is immersion as this, you know, mental state where you're kind of in the flow of the game, where, you know, you, you're just really in that world. But 
it's different from presence, you know, where it's, it's more of a physical, you know, subconscious thing. It's more about um, the feeling of being in a space physically. Uh, one example, the, the very first time that I experienced presence was being shown an early hardware demo of what is now the Oculus Rift. And it was the first time they had positional tracking. And for some reason, that's what made my, you know, the, the system click with my brain, where I could move my head around. And it showed this short demo where you were in like a boiler room or something in like a submarine. And it was just a tiny room full of, you know, machines and hallway leading out of it. And I walked around a little bit and really just had this instinct, this feeling that I could walk down the hallway. And I, I, re I like, I wanted to, I had to, at a higher conscious level, stop myself from walking down the hallway, you know, into the wall, the real world wall. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's hard to describe that in words. It's hard to communicate I what happened. I had the same experience. Yeah, it's something like, you know, deep in the circuitry of your brain being surprised, being, you know, tr being fooled. Yeah. Um, and it, it feels very, very cool and very powerful. Um, yeah. There's people listening, I'm sure, who are like, you guys, get over it. <laughs> Realize that you're in a video game. But I agree with E. It's not something you purposely forget that you're in this game. It just happens. You actually, yeah. you remember that you're in a game is kind of the best way to describe it. I had a similar thing. I did a demo where I was on top of a roof and I was looking over the edge and there was a little, um, you know, plank that I could walk out over the edge of this roof and look down 30 stories. And the people in the room were like, you're about to walk into a wall. <laughs> Stop walking. <laughs> I was so in this world. You know, I forgot that I was in a room doing a demo. Yeah. A lot yeah. of the time, you know, what you know on a conscious level is not the interesting part. I have never forgotten that I'm wearing a headset or that I'm in a game. But you have to use terminology like that to explain that feeling, you know, of like a feeling like you could walk off the edge or whatever. Nice. Or, you know that you could walk down the hallway. Yeah. It's like a step above suspension of disbelief on some level. Like you you know that it's, you know, when you're watching a film, you have to suspend your disbelief, but like with the VR like headset, you have to remind yourself that yeah. it's real. It's too much work to remember what's going on outside of the headset. You're being overstimulated. Yeah. Your eyes, you have stuff to look at. You have audio being fed into your ears. And so- You can't check your phone. You can't check your phone. And, and what's the point of remembering, like, I'm in a room playing this headset. Like, it's just naturally you let go of all that stuff when you're in the headset. Yeah. Which I think is a good way to relate it back to this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not, I don't know, like, because uh, I don't think either of you guys have actually- um, no, I didn't read, read the book. I, I read yeah. the Wikipedia summary, so. Oh, there we go. I'm good. Yeah, I mean, because the book is a little bit, um, is obviously simulated reality where like I, all of the characters, like, I think the crazy thing about the book is that all of the characters think that they're living in 1959, not just the protagonist, not just like the one person that the government is trying to fool. It's like they've brainwashed an entire town of people to think that they're all living in 1959. Um, but, you know, you were saying that a lot of this technology originates from... NASA and other like government agencies to kind of see how it could be implemented in more broad uh, scientific purposes. And NASA was pioneering a lot of, you know, fantastical technology back in the day. I mean, it still is. It's just not, a, it's got tighter drawstrings now. <laughs> it's, it's a little weird because yeah. it was, you know, the, the military and NASA who did a lot of the early work on VR. Um, but a lot of VR went dormant for a long time. It, it wasn't a thing for a good while. And 
it, was, it kind of came back accidentally when somebody realized that we had solved a lot of the problems with VR um, in the mobile phone industry. And so the recent wave of consumer VR is cannibalizing the, you know, what the, the phone guys have done, creating these very high-density, lightweight screens, for example. So the, the first Oculus Rift basically just borrowed a screen from a small tablet and uh, used the simple accelerometers and gyroscopes that they had built for phones and used that to create the first you know, Oculus Rift headset. Um, yeah, it, you know, it's still sort of borrowing a lot of technology, but it's weird that um, you know, the basic concepts have been around for a very long time and somebody just kind of realized uh, fairly recently that you know, we, we'd solved a lot of the problems that had been holding it back. Mm. I think that, you know, we talk a little bit about like the potential of, of this technology and whenever there's potential, there's also fear. A lot of media does harm to budding industries where, you know, it's, it's almost fun to kind of envision a science fiction like landscape where like technology has gone too far. And like, that's kind of what this book does time out of joint where it kind of envisions in a very like primitive way, what happens if like if the government was able to alter our reality um, and control us in in that kind of way, in a matrixy kind of way, but not with you know this other level of machines yeah. and stuff like that. Um, and I think that that you know like that fear um, surrounding VR and um, and and AR augmented reality is I don't know how much it do you think is holding back the field that, that people think that. You know, it's not something that, you know, we should be tampering with, which I don't know if that's actually the right way to put that question. But there is this idea that if we are, you know, changing our reality, then people can change our reality for us. I'm less worried about external control um, than people will, you know, willingly uh, separating themselves from the real world just because the virtual world could be, you know, so much better. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think that's still sort of speculating about the future, but um, I've, I've kind of been more convinced by like a brave new world than a 1984, you know, vision of the future where we're happy to imprison ourselves if it's pleasant enough. Um, <laughs> you know, again, yeah, I, no, I don't I think that that's, that's going to be this, you know, what happens necessarily, but I talked about those experiences that overlay a virtual world on a real world space. And so one of the ways that you can do that, you could imagine somebody living in a completely plain, you know, apartment or something, or, you know, a cell that with stone walls or whatever it is. But in the virtual world, they could make that look like whatever they wanted. Um, so you could be living in a, you know, luxury penthouse. And mm -hmm. there's limitations to that. There's a lot of stuff that we haven't solved. Physical space, you know, is one necessary component, for example. But you can imagine, you know, people sort of caring less about the real world as the virtual world takes up more and more of their the mind space, you know, of, of their attention. Well, I think it's interesting you talk about imprisoning yourselves because, you know, that actually is what's really happening in the novel. Like, Raggle Gum is, um, he's gone crazy and he's regressed into, like, a childlike state where, you know, the, it's the 1950s and everything is, like, rose-colored glasses and everything is great. Um, and because he was going insane, but he was performing this incredibly necessary text for the government, the government built this reality around him to help encourage his insanity because he, so he would keep on doing what they needed him to do, <laughs> which is, you know, kind of Philip K. Dick to a T. Everything's like your reality isn't what you think it is and the government's controlling you. Um, but 
you know, he happily lived in that world before he started to regain his sanity. And so I think that you're right. People are much more willing to kind of, you know, Yeah, and why wouldn't they want that? It's funny because in this story, the government, it's like they're persecuting everybody by putting them in the 50s. But what's so bad about being in the 50s and and living this uh, life where everything is provided for you? I feel like if people were given the option, like, hey, here's a virtual reality headset and it'll augment the world and make it how you want it, make it how you see fit. Who would yeah. reject that, you know? Well, that goes back to the Matrix, where I can't remember the character's name who's, like, eating the steak. Cypher, yes. Yeah, Two like... Matrix nerds here. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he's just like, he's like, you know, we know this, I know this steak isn't real. Yeah. Ignorance is bliss. Yeah, and he's like, he very willingly, like, he, you know, he sells his soul to go back to the dream. That's a, It's an old philosophical question. Um, but one, one, th- one thing that I've heard somebody say when, you know, interjecting into a conversation about where the future is going and how cool it's going to be is that basically... We're all talking about how being a rich Western person is going to be even better in the future. (laughs) And a lot of the time, you're kind of forgetting about the rest of the world. Um, You know, anybody who's not going to be privileged enough to live in their own VR palace, um, which I think is partially true. I've heard some people speculate, and this is getting, you know, way off into the futurist weeds, um, speculate that, hey, maybe, you know, if somebody is like living in poverty and, you know, their world is terrible... Um, maybe VR can be a solution to that. You know, maybe maybe mm. they're the ones, if the, the people who have the worst lives right now are the ones who would most appreciate having it completely papered over with VR. That's a big assumption. <laughs> well, a lot of this is, and that's yeah. why I'm saying it's, you know, getting way out there. Yeah. Um, once you start I'm thinking... I'm not saying you're saying that, yeah. I know. I, I really enjoy, you know, thinking sort of about crazy ways that the future could turn out, you know, get me going about AI or something and, you know, or the singularity, like that gets crazy quickly. I think you have a good point there, though. I think all new technology and especially entertainment technology eventually will just trickle down and uh, will raise up the standard of life for all people, whether you're really well off. Um, I mean, just look at there's a television in most homes, you know. Well, yeah, we, I mean, like we're all living in the best age to be yeah. alive, like regardless of who you are, like it's better now than it was 100 years ago. In theory. <laughs> I, I'm sure there's people who'd argue against it, but I, I tend to be an optimist. I tend to feel like we're, you know, it is progress. I think mm. it'd be good to fix the real world if we can. <laughs> but in light of that, we're gonna well, the VR world might be a I suitable think, substitute. I think it's interesting that, you know, this uh, book, this story is yeah. juxtaposing this kind of virtual, you know, past world that's idyllic. And this future that's about space and, you know, going out into the, into the cosmos. Um, I feel like maybe, you know, if virtual reality progresses and it becomes its own thing and we can build any experience we want right here at home, then people may feel there's really no need to go out, you know, in, into space. That, you know, if you can build that experience of, hey, you know, you want to know what it's like to go colonize the moon? Here, we have mm-hmm. a simulator for that then maybe we don't have to do it in the real world. You know, I think one of my favorite things about this book, though, and it's, you know, the book is criticized pretty heavily for having a rushed ending, but I actually think that's one of my favorite things about it because it leaves so many questions, like, in your mind, which for me is kind of um, very satisfying, like, to kind of it leaving a book to, that leaves you uh, thinking. But one of the things that the book kind of ends on is this idea that we're explorers. Like, um, we should be able to, like, we shouldn't be stuck where we are, that we should have the right to kind of 
go and be free and explore as much as we can because that's in our very nature is to to continue to look for something new um and you know vr is kind of part of that like i mean like every every technology that we're working on right now is just the constant quest to look for something new i can see that um it, it also it, it in you know that line of questioning kind of reminds me of um some of the you know deep soul searching thoughts that game designers go through sometimes about the value of our work or you know what it is that we're what kind of experiences we're giving to people um in some way it feels like games are uh, more real or less fictional than um, other media because you know a, a key part of it the, the game mechanics the interaction is at some level like a real thing like it's people who are you know reacting to something um, you know, on the fly based on their own decisions in a way that the designer can't predict. Mm. And so, you know, I wonder like how much value we see as, as humans in, you know, in, in gameplay potentially. Like uh, if you had somebody who, you know, devoted their life to being the best tennis player in the world and, you know, moving the state of the art forward, like, you know, being better than anybody thought you could, po could possibly be, um, is there value in that? You know, is there, um, is, is there, are they doing something new? Are they exploring in some way? Um, if I created this huge virtual world where, you know, people could create whatever they wanted in it and people could interact and, you know, within some rules that have been pre-designed, you know, create and do, you know, new and different things that I could never predict. Could somebody live a, a, a valuable life within that, that world, I wonder? That's a good question. <laughs> it's interesting. Your question reminds me of um, Second Life, which mm -hmm. was popular a few years ago. But, uh, you know, kind of Second Life, I think, was a replacement for VR, where VR wasn't around. It was still this world that you could enter and live in a second reality. And uh, for anybody listening who's not familiar with Second Life, it's a video game where you can do whatever you want. You just, is it like The Sims or is it? It's like The Sims, but bigger. You okay. can have a job, go to work. You could be a superhero. You could be a stay-at-home mom. It's called Second Life. It's, you know, just right. Correct me if I'm wrong. I never played Second Life, but I'm familiar with the culture around it. Um, uh, yeah, but it got weird quick. It did get weird <laughs> quick. But, How did um, it get weird? Well, I heard of people who would, like, have affairs in Second Life. Would, like... Oh, I have heard of this. Yeah. yeah. Would, like, just connect with somebody on an emotional level. They were making, like, real-world um, decisions in their own life based on what was happening to them in Second Life. Oh, wow. Well, I, I mean, from a uh, from a game designer's perspective... Okay, and I hope yes. that's not, like, an insufferable way to start a sentence. No, this is... I want to hear <laughs> this perspective. As the game guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, people were having affairs in World of Warcraft, you know, yeah, pretending cool. to be orcs and paladins and whatnot. Mm -hmm. People, you know, have been having affairs in the early text-based multi-user dungeons in the, you know, 80s and 90s. Um, people, you know, connecting and having real experiences in virtual worlds has, you know, always been a thing. And Second Life, in some way, was, was only interesting, well, I shouldn't say only interesting, but primarily interesting to me in that it f explicitly did that. It was saying, we are just like the real world, but you can do anything. Um, whereas... From my perspective, a lot of these games, you know, Minecraft and, you know, World of Warcraft and tons of games are are real in the same way. They're real in the important way that people are part of it and they create their own culture and things are meaningful to them, you know, in, 
you know, on a, a subjective level in ways mm. that are just important. So, you know, I think I frame it as a question about like, can somebody, you know, have like real experiences within a game or a virtual world? But I think the answer, you know, per, my personal answer to that is yes, absolutely, of course. There's philosophers who will talk about how we can't know whether or not we're living right now in a dream or a simulation or something like that. And that's a fun thought experiment too. Like, are we all just brains and vats in some laboratory, you know, who being made to think that we're here and now. Mm. And I think my answer is um, the experiences that I'm, that I'm having right now as a person are real to me. And I don't think that if you suddenly woke me up from the simulation that I'd stop caring about the people I care about or the world that I live in. You know, I'd feel angry that they yeah. took me away from it, perhaps. I'm, you know, I'd be curious about this, you know, situation that I was in. But I don't care any less. It's already meaningful to me, regardless of whether it's real on some metaphysical level or not. So to me, I think the answer is definitely that virtual worlds can be just as true and meaningful as the physical. Yeah. And I think, too, to get back to this question of what is the value of creating uh, these things, as a creator, sometimes you don't know. But the users will go in and they'll find their own value. Not everybody's going to find romance in a video game. Yeah. But some people will. And it'll be a life-changing experience to them. Actually thinking about I have a friend who met his wife on World of Warcraft. I totally had forgotten about that. Like they met in college. Like she was in, oh God, she was in, I want to say Tennessee, but I feel like that's wrong. Um, and we were in New York and huh. she moved to New York City. Yeah. And it's crazy, but they're, you know, they're still going strong. And I'm sure the creators of World of Warcraft never thought this is going to bring people together in a romantic <laughs> way. They can never predict that. But, you know, the things they create go on to have these um, unconsidered effects and outcomes. Yeah. I mean, I think people are, you know, everyone knows that guy who or girl um, uh, who was playing World of Warcraft so much that it infringed on their like interpersonal totally. relationships like their real life or what we what we kind of call real life but i think what you're saying is true is that you know the people that they're talking to on the other end are real people it how you choose to interact with people is up to you that's your choice as an individual yeah that's interesting you say like they had forgotten real life or were ignoring it but they might argue that that was real life yeah like, or that those are their closer friends just because they're not in the next room that yeah. they're real friends yes in a way the way that's important and I think you can make a good argument that getting a, you know, addicted to World of Warcraft or just spending too much time there could be a negative thing for you because you still have a real life. It's not optional. Yeah. And you could also say that the experience in World of Warcraft is never going to be the same as a real world experience because it's not the same as, you know, being there in person or, you know, everything is being mediated through this weird fantasy game. But the cool part is we can control that part, the medium. We can make the virtual world different. And with VR and technologies like that, we can also change the fidelity of the experience. Maybe it can really be like being in the same place as another person. Um, or just spitballing, maybe it could be better. Maybe you can, you know, maybe it's a better social experience if, you know, it's just like you and me are, you know, here sitting together talking, but we also have whatever magical powers have been programmed for us. <laughs> we can, if I want to illustrate something or show you something, I can just create it. In We're the on the deck us. of the Starship Enterprise or I talking. Can, <laughs> I can make, you know, the room look like whatever appeals to me and you can make it look like whatever appeals to you. Mm. Or we can force each other to see what we want to see if that's better for communication. Yeah. I don't know what that would look like. But when the power, you know, that we have is like, 
make this virtual world look like anything. It's hard to imagine that there is no answer better than default reality. Yeah. You know, like, could you imagine anything in the room that we're in right now that could be, you know, better? I mean, it's a gray room. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so we want it to be like purple yeah. or something. You know, click a button and make that happen. Now, okay, I've proven that our virtual simulation is better than reality. I don't know. I don't know if I'm really believing what I'm saying right now, no, but, but I, I think there's that, a lot of power. You know, we were, Derek and I were talking a little bit before uh, we all sat down and we were saying how, you know, the interpersonal relationships that can be improved by VR with your relatives that you have on the other side of the country. Like, I know, you know, you, if you want to have, you know, a lot of people FaceTime now, but instead of FaceTiming, what if everyone just slipped on their VR headset and you could go to, you can both go and meet in a virtual recreation of your grandmother's house that you both remember when you were really, really like young kids and have a great conversation with one of your siblings. You know, like you can ha enrich yeah. your experience. I think that gaming right now fuels uh, what VR is doing. Uh, but in my opinion, and E, I would love to know what you think. Uh, but I think like social media, social interactions will be the real future for VR. Well, it's interesting that Oculus got bought by Facebook because they definitely believe, you know, along those lines. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about of, you know, oh, what if you could meet with your relatives in your own, you know, custom space and talk like, you know, face to face, they're already doing that. There's something called Facebook Spaces that's based, you know, basically trying things like that already. They showed a demo with Mark Zuckerberg driving at a previous Oculus conference where he, you know, showed up with his own custom avatar and was it he an could, alien? No, he could he could he <laughs> made it look like himself, but you could make it look like what you wanted. So an, okay. Yeah. And you know, he could uh, pull up, you know, photos or videos from his Facebook feed and he could even do like a 360 video. So boom, you're now seeing from my perspective what I saw on my vacation or what have you. So you know, they're definitely thinking along those lines. Um, I feel like personally I'm more interested in the game side of things because I'm a game designer. That's the part I'm in love with. If VR and games, you know, were never to work together again, I would go with the games because just that's the part I like. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you have to make that choice because what we see is in any sort of game um, that can involve multiple people, you know, talking about the game or experiencing the game together, they're going to create some social experience or even culture around it. So like World of Warcraft may not have, you know, been a, intended to be like a complete virtual world where you're going to find your future husband. But for some people it became that just because it was a rich experience that they shared. Fortnite right now is the current, you know, uh, mega hit that everybody's playing. And the story that you keep seeing over and over again is people who watch kids play the game and say, oh my God, it's not even about the game. They're barely playing. This is an excuse for them to be in this place that's interesting and fun and talk about anything. You know, I, I feel like the, the social part is going to come along with it regardless of, of what we do, if it's a rich and powerful yeah. experience. And what you were talking about before with Minecraft is kind of a, like a same thing. Like the, Minecraft is, um, like I was, I forget, I, I want to say it was a Newsweek article, but they were talking about how it's, you know, it's building a future generation of engineers. You know, like it's not only teaching kids how to put building blocks and coding together, but also how to work in a team and like, you know, you're like, all right, you do this part of the job. I'm going to do this part of a job. And together we're going to build something that's kind of amazing. Or you can do it by yourself. Yeah. If I had a kid, I would let them play as much Minecraft as their heart desire. <laughs> yeah. I think all that day, is an extremely day. edifying game, literally. Yeah. I agree with you that the games are what's most exciting to me as well, uh, moving into the future. 
But I also think that it's going to be the non-game um, applications of VR that are going to bring in uh, demographics that are traditionally non-gamers already. So, you know, my grandma is not going to play <laughs> any VR video game. <laughs> but if I tell her, like, hey, you can have Christmas with the family, you can open gifts with us on Christmas Day, put this headset on, I think that'll get her into a VR headset. So that's why I feel this social aspect of it is um, just going to be so huge for the general public that isn't really interested in gaming necessarily, but are still really excited about mm. the possibilities of VR for everyday um, purposes. I will say the the one thing that I sort of use for myself is like a check on the, the hype that I feel for VR is um, how much better is this really than a Skype call, than, yeah. than FaceTiming, you know? Like... A lot of the things that people talk about um, is like, oh, man, you can be like in the same room with someone. You can, you know, see their facial expressions in real time. And, you know, it's like you're talking directly to them. It's like, okay, no, we have that. It's it's a video call. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I think the technology has to get better in a lot of ways before it's, um, you know, a, a big qualitative step beyond that. And, you know, the, the things that VR does do better right now I think tend more towards the gaming side, you know, like, or more generally like the more fantastical stuff, you know, more immersive things, you know, the 360 videos and things like that. Um, in the future though, you know, there's no telling where the, you know, how good the tech is going to get. And, you know, it, it's possible that at a certain point it will feel more real than, you know, a video call or something, you know, that's, that's more mediated like that. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> we're not there yet. We're mm -hmm. not there yet. It's easy to, you know, to sort of... To speculate. Yeah. And dream of what might be. But it's, it's still a far way off. Um, but going on that, you know, the innovation that's involved with, like, VR and AR, like, where do you think that, you know, outside of what we've talked about, we've talked about it bringing, you know, people closer um, and also uh, the, the future of gaming. But where do you kind of think that the field is heading that maybe we haven't touched on yet? Or what are you the most excited about? Um, I tend to be more focused on sort of the near future just from a practical perspective. Yeah. And um, I feel like a lot of the, the an interesting answers are kind of, you know, solutions to technical problems that they may not sound like much, but they improve the experience, you know, in a way that's, that's important for that presence that we talked about earlier. So, you know, th there's a lot of innovations right now that people are talking about for incorporating eye tracking so that we can see what you're looking at uh, in the virtual world. Um, or uh, allowing depth of field effects where you can focus on something up close and the things behind it become blurry, like in the real world. Um, or there's technology that people are working on to reduce the nausea effects so that maybe you can walk freely you know, around a world or have artificial locomotion without getting sick. Or there's even something that, you know, you could use electronic pulses to influence people's feeling of, uh, of acceleration, of, of motion, which to me sounds really dangerous and difficult to do, but apparently there's some interesting proof of concept work and maybe you can have that where you can actually influence people's you know, feeling of motion directly. Um, so a lot of these things, they're kind of incremental. You know, they're, they're baby steps forward. But the, you know, the, the magical part of VR for me was when they got the tech just good enough that 
deep down my brain forgot that it was a virtual world and it felt like I was there. And I think the more of these little you know, problems you solve, the closer you get to having that sense of presence for everybody that can sustain itself. And maybe that's when you know, VR becomes something that's really qualitatively better than anything else that we have right now. Looking even further into the future, some VR people talk about how VR is the ultimate platform in the sense of the last platform. That if you could do VR perfectly, if you could really just plug people into the matrix and make them feel or see whatever you needed, then hypothetically you could simulate every other possible medium within that. You just have godlike control over people's experience. And Ready Player One. Or like. external experience, I yeah. should say. Yeah, like Ready Player One or something like that. And once you've done that, then if it's good enough, if it works, then who needs any other medium? You can just do it in VR virtually. Who needs anything really as long as it can be replicated in the VR world? And so I think some people do see, you know, the future of VR being all-encompassing, that you could put yourself in 1950s America and live there if you really wanted to. Hmm. Um, I'm running out of time, unfortunately. I, I think I feel like we could probably keep going for like a really long time. Uh, but I've actually hit roughly all of the things that are, are on my list that I wanted to talk about. Is there anything that you wanted to get back to, Derek? Um, you know, I think the only thing, uh, that's basically it for me. I do, to me, I think in the future, I see the capabilities of, I'm not a video game developer, even though I work in the video game industry, I'm more of like a filmmaker. I make mm. videos about video games. So I see VR through a, a lens of a filmmaker making movies in VR. I think that there's a viable future there. And, you know, I see television broadcasts being replaced by VR. You know, I see how many people tuned into the Royal wedding this past summer just to watch it from their home and just get one or, you know, a couple camera angles of it. If they had a 360 camera at the wedding and you could be there in the room looking around at all the Royals and the aristocrats. I think a lot of people would opt into doing that. So. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. It's crazy. Cause that's not like, you know, what excites me about this is the same thing that kind of excites you Eve, where I'm much more interested in like the potentials of, of my interactions with VR in terms of gaming. But like, I think for the masses, the social yeah. aspect is the masses I'm saying is, it, <laughs> I feel like it's, I agree <laughs> on a personal yeah. level. I'm more excited to play cool video games and explore strange but worlds. Other no, but I, I mean. yeah, yeah, I think for just the average Joe who doesn't care about visiting the world of avatar, you know, yeah. <laughs> but just, Hey, he can be on the 50 yard line at the Super Bowl. you know, put that VR headset. You're in the stadium. I think that's going to appeal to a broad, um, portion of the public. God, Ugh. I'm, I just, you're right. And I, I think that I can't even think about, you know, people who love traveling, if you could just get like a scan of like the entire Grand Canyon or something like and that. It's and it's live. Just, yeah. You're there that day. It's not a recording. Yeah. You know? I just want to throw out a lot of this you can do now. Totally. The concerts, yeah. it's called Oculus Venues. They're, they've been working on that for a while. The Grand Canyon, I'd be stunned. One of the very first, you know, demos I did was like a helicopter, you know, flyover of this beautiful landscape. Um, a lot of these things are available now. And, you know, I, I think they're very cool, but they're not the same as being there right now. Totally. They're, you know, yeah. and I think a lot of that is kind of social context. Like, is the, is the experience of watching the Super Bowl really better from 
the sidelines, you know, from from your your seat that you bought yeah. compared to watching the television version. You yeah. probably have a better view from the television cameras. That's probably yeah. I mean, because the things, a lot of stuff that we think that we can do, you know, the market will change it. Like it's either people will buy into it, or like a lot of people that have a little bit of extra cash in their pockets will buy into it, and whether or not they actually like it is how yeah. it ends up pl- panning but, out. But it's also like I, I'm. I'm thinking like the social experience or context of, you know, being in the stands may matter more than the viewpoint, you yeah. know, than what you see and hear from there. And I think with the current VR headset uh, and technology that we have, it's just not easy. You could do it, but there's a lot of, you know, you got to buy the equipment. You got to get a computer that can run it. Mm. If it becomes easier and, you know, it's just a like Google Glass, just some sunglasses you can pop on. Because that didn't ca- catch on, though. It didn't catch on. Well, We're not there yet. Yeah. But. Google Glass was was kind of doing a different thing. But there are people mm. who are working on that. And, um, you know, there's a wave of new devices coming out that are self-contained. They're standalone devices. Mm. They don't need you to hook it up to a computer or anything. Um, Oculus Quest is going to be coming out next year, and it's its own standalone device that has uh, hand tracking and positional tracking on the headset, which... Um, I don't know. I think that's a big step forward. Um, you know, it, it matters that it doesn't have that friction of needing your own PC at home. So, yeah, I think that could be a step forward. Hmm. Um, I also wanted to to mention one more thing, you know, before we close off, which was a, a quote that I saw from Bill Gates from some time ago, that we tend to overestimate the change that will occur in two years and underestimate the change that will occur in 10 years. And... I feel like that may be true in this case of VR, where we can see all these cool things that might happen with VR, but in the next couple of years, I don't know if it's going to get good enough that it's going to replace everything, that it's going to become this all-inclusive ultimate platform or anything like that. I think it's going to be a future, but not the future. It's going to be a really cool thing that you can do for video games and stuff like that. Um, But 10 years or 20 years or 30 years down the line, it becomes much more speculative. And I, I really don't know how good it's going to get or where it's going to go or how important it's going to be in our lives. And I think that there's a lot of potential there. Um, once you get far enough in the future, I almost don't want to speculate because it, you know, it's just so hard to tell. There's so many different ways that the future could branch out. But I think that the distance we could travel technologically is a lot, you know, a lot greater than a lot of people imagine. That's smart. <laughs> Thanks. I didn't say it. Bill Gates did. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity just to talk, like, just to maybe, I don't know. Um, I don't, how much time do we have left? It's 1157. It's 1157. So uh, maybe what we'll do is we'll link to the two games that you have, or the two games that you have out so people can find them if four they games. want. Four games. Yeah. Oh, okay. I've been busy since been we last busy. talked. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Well, thanks, E, for coming and talking with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Derek, thanks for helping me out. Glad to hop on the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That's it. Cool. All right. That was cool. fun, dude. Yeah. yeah. I like talking to you. You know. <laughs> okay. That is the end. I hope you guys enjoyed the interview as much as I did. Thanks again to E. McNeil. Uh, if you didn't know, E is the developer for games like Darknet and various other VR and PC games. You can find them all on his website, emcneil.com. It'll be in our footnotes. Um, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't heard of Derek Acosta, you should check out Mega64, which is a YouTube channel before there was YouTube. Of course, it's all up on YouTube now, but if you like video games and 
you like funny stuff, uh, I would definitely recommend checking out their videos. So uh, thanks to E, Derek, for coming in and speaking with me. Uh, thanks to John Wanser for recording this interview. And of course, thanks to Emily Jankowski for helping setting everything up. All right, that's it. Thanks, guys.